that woman deserves her revenge. The incident that happened at the Two Pines Wedding Chapel that put this whole gory story into motion has since become legend. I'm sorry. I overreacted. You overreacted? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers, honorary Sleezoids, uh, you guys get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we've been doing for a few months now. There's tons of episodes back there for you guys. Oh, yeah. A Cronenberg Plenty double feature, some Robocop in there. Which was fantastic. Some nuts stuff. Uh, but two weeks ago would have been the last time all of our listeners would have heard from us. And what were we talking then? We were talking Streets of Fire, and we paired it with uh, Wild, Wild Zero, Zero. Which is uh, just... Pure rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they were rock and roll cult films, and that was with our special guest from the Bunta Vista Socialist podcast, uh, Andrew Law. He brought those two films on. That was a lot of fun talking about. Uh, uh, but patrons, last week, I think uh, you guys would have heard from us talking about Jackie Chan. Yeah, drunken um, master. Yeah, we did the his breakout uh, star-making role as the drunken master. Uh, 1978, and we paired it with the sort of uh, long-awaited sequel that came in the 90s. Almost 20 years, right? Yeah, 1994. Yeah, it's crazy. um, Legend of the Drunken Master, which was co-directed by both Chan and having now had a directing career post that, and uh, Lau Kar Lung, one of the most famous um, Shaw Brothers filmmakers, which actually leads us into this week pretty perfectly. Yeah. Uh, So this week we have a special guest on... uh, Leslie Lee from the Struggle Session podcast. Leslie, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing really, really good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. Uh, Leslie, what films have you brought with you this week, and why have you paired them together? Okay, so, well, I first I want to say that you guys have already done about five or six episodes that I should have been invited on already. <laughs> oh, damn, which ones? Especially the... The vi- video drum, especially. Oh yeah, the Cronenberg on. one was one of our favorites that we've done so yeah, far. You did <laughs> scanners, video drum and scanners. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I saw you already <laughs> did Kill Bill and uh, Prisoner, uh, uh, Scorpion. Uh, yeah, female prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also very upset about not being on that one. So <laughs> I had to follow up uh, with uh, Volume Two of Kill Bill and the other uh, Mako Kaji film that Quentin Tarantino stole from in order to make Kill Bill. That's, of course, Lady Snowblood. Right. So so basically, you brought with you almost a direct sequel to our Kill Bill Volume 1 <laughs> yeah. and Female Prisoner We're episode. Wrapping it up today. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and Female Prisoner, of course, uh, Mako Kaji is a star of both Female Prisoner and Lady Snowblood. These are two classic um, pinky violence films, which is like 
Japan exploitation, usually featuring um, female protagonists in prisons or their yakuza, their gangsters. Lady Snowblood is different because she's kind of like a lady, a female samurai. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's more of a and, period piece. Yeah, and so well, it it it's, takes place in a kind of a weird period because it's, it's when. Japan was going through its transitional phase from like the Edo period and the feudal system to like capitalism. And they specifically uh, talk about this and it's opening up uh, to Western influence. Usually mm. it's spoken of in a negative light um, in this. Well, yeah, because that was that would have been right before when they were kind of stockpiling up so that they could start colonizing places like Korea, which we know didn't yes. uh, go well. <laughs> oh, well, colonization almost never does. But, um, these movies pair very well together. If you want to know what Quentin Tarantino was thinking while he was making Kill Bill, you got to watch Lady Snowblood because he got a, a lot from this. Awesome. Well, I think that was a great introduction, and I think we'll we'll kind of jump right into it. So usually we do the the more popular film first, and then we follow it up with uh, with the other one. And uh, yeah. so I think we're going to start with Kill Bill, Kill so, Bill Volume Two. Yeah, let's let's wrap it up. Do it. <laughs> the Kill Bill series. It all suddenly seems so clear. I was a killer who killed for you. I had to choose. I chose her. She must suffer to her last breath. You and I have unfinished business. Baby, you ain't kidding. All right, we are talking Kill Bill Volume 2, the 2004 uh, martial arts epic the the conclusion of it written and directed by quentin tarantino uh inspired by all kinds of shaw brothers kung fu films and uh, japanese revenge films we already talked about things taken pretty much directly from it (laughs) oh some of those music cues and such yeah uh we already talked about kill bill uh volume one on the show and i really don't feel like we need to give much of a plot synopsis of a film that's so uh new yeah this is because usually we try to stick away from 2000s movies but you know if if a film is very heavily inspired by the kind of films that we're yeah, talking I mean, this about is directly fair referencing game. throughout so yes but i guess we'll do a sort of a quick refresher on kill bill volume one so yeah, it stars sure. uma thurman who co-created the character with quinton um q and you uh and it stars her as the bride uh, or Beatrix Kiddo, or Mom, Black yeah. Mamba. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, all kinds of uh, monikers, because this is, in a, you know, in a lot of its own way, this is Tarantino's sort of identity picture, uh, yeah. which, you know, uh, he, he kind of does a lot of that on uh, in some of his historical ones, like Inglorious Bastards too. Um, but this one specifically, um, Kill Bill Volume 1, that is, was a straight-up revenge picture. It was had huge sort of flamboyant action to it, um, very inspired by a filmmaker we talked about a bit on last week's show, Lau Karlong, whose Shaw Brothers pictures, along with a few other filmmakers, were uh, some of the most influential um, that there could be on Tarantino's actual action style here, that oh, yeah. very sort of uh, theatrical, very, uh, <laughs> uh, I would say, movement-based, very yeah. heavy-hitting. No poles, though. No, you no. know. I and it's like uh, the, the camera work, too, especially with uh, when we get to, you know, like Pai Mei, uh, 
it's, it's <laughs> those fantastic. Zooms. Those zooms, oh, which I mean, so directly good. reference with uh, yeah. uh, Lady Snowblood and and the other ones too. I mean, I think Prisoner Seven Hundred One mm. had that uh, as well. Those kind of those fast zoom ins when people are reacting to something surprised yes. or whatever. Yeah, but the the plot sort of you know boils down to the idea that revenge is really goddamn messy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and you know it. it we talked about, especially when we were talking about Kill Bill Volume 1, was the idea that Tarantino really interestingly opened that film with the scene that most revenge pictures would end on, mm. um, which was the scene where we see the protagonist recognize the sort of rippling consequences and trauma that she is causing while seeking this, you know, very blinded, rageful revenge. Yeah. Um, where we see her kill... Um, Vivica, a fox's character in front of her daughter, acknowledging the fact that she's probably just created another version of herself in that little girl. Yeah. Um, and But kind of from there, you get a back and forth between the bride and Lucy Liu's Oren. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are both former, or I mean, Oren is still an assassin, uh, but the bride is a former assassin, part of the, uh, what do they call them, the Deadly Viper Squad or something? Some- yeah, I believe so. Something like that. Uh, and they work for this guy named Bill, who is just a very controlling, very manipulative, very abusive um, man in their life. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's most interesting that we're going to talk about as we get into Volume 2 is that Kill Bill Volume 1 very strategically frames Bill out of the camera all of the mm-hmm. time. All you ever see of him is his, is his hand and you hear his sort of disembodied voice yeah. as he is either grasping a weapon or he's touching some of the women's faces uh, in a non-consensual way. Yeah. It really <laughs> makes him feel just untouchable and kind of has that mystery behind it. And him. the film obviously shockingly opens with him murdering uh, <laughs> yeah. shooting the bride in the face uh, in her wedding dress knowing, that, uh, she's knowing that she's pregnant with his child. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of how it frames Bill, and it's how it sets up the bride. The bride is out for revenge on Bill for um, from what she thinks killing her child and mm-hmm. trying to kill her for just trying to leave him. Yeah, and um, all of her friends and newfound kind of, I guess, misfit family. Exactly, that she has. and the the first film just kind of got at the idea that Oren is sort of you know kind of an equal for her. And there's a sadness, inherent sadness in killing um, in, 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 in killing Oren, yeah. just because you know it's it's sort of Bill um, has sort of pitted these women against each other the same way that in Female Prisoner the sort of prison system pits all these different women against each other. Yeah. Um, so uh, and that is sort of interestingly what leads us into Volume Two is that the bride. All we know of her, she's on a revenge mission to kill Bill at any cost because she needs this catharsis in her life. Yeah. She doesn't care the damages or consequences, and she fucking loves killing. Yeah, that, that can't be That's understated. A part of her. Yeah. yeah, she absolutely loves Which it. This the, movie the, really heavily dives into the that, joyful filmmaking that, that takes place film. as she's splitting people in half. Uh, mm. Cannot be understated, and that is what kind of leads us into Volume Two, um, which Leslie, if you want to take us through sort of the beginnings of Volume Two. All right, sure. So we actually see what happens now. We figure out how what that black and white scene that we briefly see at the beginning oh, of right, Kill Bill yes. 1, what leads up to that, and that's the uh, Bill showing up at the wedding rehearsal um, for um, Uma Thurman, for the bride, who is, you know, she's escaped Bill. She's heavily, heavily pregnant. 
she's with all her normie friends and her extremely, <laughs> extremely normie fiance. Like we know that she's like this, you know, super badass assassin, but she's escaped into this uh, other life um, because she she's cho- chosen to. She liked her interactions with her friends. She's just a very normal. You see her being like this very normal person that, you know, is just this, you know, psychopathic uh, killer. But mm. she, for some reason, she's chosen to do this life, and you can, and she, you can feel like a certain level of condescension, like towards the, all the other characters. And for some reason, Samuel Jackson's in the background playing piano. But, like, <laughs> yep, like, gotta have just, Jackson like, in there. You go from this hyper violent fantasy world to just like these normal people sitting a lot, sitting around, you know, living their lives, and it's kind of funny. To see this happen and then bill shows up and then the other world like invades and then murders all these people um, right yeah and it, it very quickly recontextualizes because the first film very obviously strategically opens on just bill's gruesome act and whereas this one spends a lot of time um showing you who bill actually is yeah uh, and it he, shows it, his use of manipulation really well because you almost well you, and he's you charming like him almost he's trying exactly. i mean they yeah, they, they, charming, they, they yeah. called him the snake charmer uh, <laughs> yeah. was his actual title which <laughs> right. is completely accurate but you you see that uma does actually like talking to him oh and that yeah. they they have a chemistry and a back and forth there's a lot of love which I is mean, even before she goes to mm-hmm. you know mary uh i think it's Tommy, or I can't remember his name, but the record uh, store, yeah, the record store owner. Uh, (laughs) she gives you know Bill quite a passionate goodbye kiss, you know what I mean? Like, you can tell that there's a lot of there's genuine affection there, but I know this, I know he doesn't kiss her back, yes, Yes. twice, and he doesn't kiss her back because he's already made his decision, yeah. But again, he's so good at putting on this, like, I'm the I'm this is the good side. I think, Mm -hmm. I think they even remark upon it, they're just like, I only ever showed you. Like you were the only one who ever saw that side of me. He right. was like, I always thought that side of you was the best one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a really interesting just because you know the the first film very much goes out of its way so that you only ever see Bill's brutal action, uh, and this one very quickly subverts it almost entirely. And it's the main course of action that it takes that differentiates it yeah. is that it it wants you to see you know, how a person who can do things that Bill does and how he can, you know, actually invade your life, um, you know, in, in a way that doesn't, it's disarming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, it takes a lot to be able to convince also an audience that a character would be able to well, manipulate you, these you, kind you, of people. You have, you have to hold that in your head too. Yeah, you, we know everything Bill's other. already done when we're seeing this right. scene. When it's like most of the time you feel like you could just be like, <laughs> guys, if you guys just talked for like 10 minutes and we're like, you know what? Bill is the one doing all this shit. Like, why don't we, yeah. you know, it's just they can't. It seems like his charm has just overcome them completely. Mm. And so after that, we have this kind of uh, Bill shows up and warns his brother that the bride is coming. And then we have this very Tarantino like digression, the scene that you could cut almost cut entirely out of the film. and It'll be the same film, <laughs> but it adds to it where we show him showing up to his job and his boss like yelling at him um, for showing up late and really. Talking oh, it's really depressingly funny. 
yeah. where he where you know that this is an international assassin played by yes. Michael Madsen, who is always a badass in Tarantino films. Uh, <laughs> and he has a, like and his a, boss is just giving him shit. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, wow, that's really depressing. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah, it, it's brutal. And just uh, he basically he goes from this, you know, top assassin to a guy just scratching off his his dates yeah. to make his minimum wage job and like yeah it's 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 a devastating scene and it's it's once again odd to feel for a character you know is a total piece of shit <laughs> Tarantino does that very well yeah yeah but you, you get that feeling that like he, he, the point he's trying to make in this movie is that like within everyone there are multitudes because that mm-hmm. his boss and the dancers at the club have no idea who he actually is and we end up under and it almost it probably makes the audience underestimate him because the bride comes to kill him. We think he's she's just going off him. Like, no, it's the exact opposite. He wrecks her like yeah. easily. He's prepared. Shotguns are right in the chest, right? Yeah, that's a good point because he is. He's prepared right away. As soon as she opens that door, you think like, you know, maybe this is it. Probably a fight's going to ensue. But you think that it's going to be something and then she's going to come out and talk. Right away, she just gets shotgunned in the chest and buried alive. So, I mean, yep. yeah, it starts off. Really bad for her. <laughs> well, and it's so funny because in, in the scene before where he's kind of talking with Bill, he has that line where he's like, you know what? We, we deserve to die, man. Like, we've done some shitty yeah. things and we deserve to reckon for them. Yeah. And then he was like, well. She deserves her revenge. Th- then again, he also said, that, so does she, though. Because yeah. that's just it. Is this, It's the same journey we kind of went on with Kill Bill Volume They've 1. They've all lived this life. Was the idea was that, yeah, they were all part of this mm-hmm. really grotesque, uh, you know, like, universe, basically. Yeah, just because they haven't shown it doesn't mean that she hasn't done some absolutely god-awful things in the past. Yeah, but that all of these people are obviously still susceptible to very real human conditions. Right. and and things like that and that's what that does feel sort of volume two really does try to clarify for the audience the more human side of all of these people for sure um, which gets really really interesting as we get into the direct relationship between bill and um the bride and so you see uh is this the so you see this is the first scene that you see them where they're happy um where he's playing the flute um, mm. And just talking to her before. Oh he yeah, because 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 Michael Madsen puts her in a coffin, right? Yeah, that's yeah. And, and it, Michael Madsen puts her in a coffin, and then it cuts to the she, she has the flashback of uh, her training. Yeah, and you see Bill and Kiddo together, uh, like as a couple for the first time, where they're kind of happy. And he's telling her her um, this was a story a story about Pi May and how. He slaughtered an entire temple of people because a monk didn't return his nod. <laughs> it seems like a chill dude, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and so and so he puts this woman he loves in the hands of this, you know, this crazy old murderous <laughs> man, and the, and the murder and the guy literally says like, "Why are you here? Do you just want to die? You know, I kill people just like whenever I feel like it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you look at me wrong, and it's over. Like so, yeah." yeah. But then, then we get a pretty cool um, training montage where she gets her ass kicked a couple of times, pretty brutally uh, by Pai Mei. And he always does that thing with his beard where he like throws it to the side, just like, I'm such a bad <laughs> A lot of whooshing sound look effects. At, look yeah. look oh, how pretty awesome. I am. I'm such a bad motherfucking bitch. Yeah, and, and this is. Pai Mei <laughs> is obviously, again, played by Gordon Liu who we yeah. talked about, because he, he plays a role in both Volume 1 and Volume 2, but he is the star of Shaw Brothers films. 
right. uh, the the kung fu films. The dude is an amazing. Like he was in uh, Thirty Six Chamber of Shaolin. Thirty Six Chamber yeah. Shaolin is the, the film, film that's being referenced uh, with this training montage because Thirty Six Chamber Shaolin, which I actually just uh, watched a couple weeks ago, actually is half of it is just a training montage. Oh, nice. And, and it's and it's about the, uh, the 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 spirituality of kung fu and how it empowers you and makes you better. And what's so interesting is that Tarantino sort of contrasts that by being like, actually, kung fu just makes you an unstoppable force, but it dehumanizes you because that's what he is. He's trying to like beat her into being right. this amazingly like that, extraordinary right. force. He has that great line where he's like. Uh, like he's like you have to, something along the lines of you have to admit now that you are the worm and and you are fighting an eagle. Like yeah. you are nothing essentially <laughs> to me. Like I could snap you with any movement uh, at my disposal. Oh, and there's so. so many great comedic beats where like he throws the sword in the air and it lands perfectly like sheathed on the oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> it is this one is very I mean the whole series is, but this one I felt dove a little deeper into that kind of comical hmm. realm. I, I don't know if you agree there. Like I found that there were more shots where I was laughing a bit more, especially more so with Pai Mei than anything else. But oh yeah, well the, the stuff with Pai Mei is just, it, I mean I think a lot of people think, because obviously it's, it's they so They see it as it, cheesy or something? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so ripped from the 70s kung fu movies, yeah. which which do have that sort of cheese factor to them, but they're so much fun. It's very charming. Like yeah. I don't, yeah, I find it more charming than cheesy. <laughs> yeah. One knock I have on this, and uh, I think is fair to knock Tarantino for this because he's very specific about this. Mm. Uh, Uma Thurman's outfit during the training montage when she initially gets up there is um, really bad and not does not look cool at all. Like she's in capri <laughs> jeans, and, like this kind of flowery shirt and this hoodie, and it does not flow well at all with her fighting. Oh, interesting. Because like, I, I don't know that I noticed that, but I did think that when when she gets dropped off there, that she is kind of sort of. She, She's supposed to be a little bit more of like a naive, naive like yeah. girl, the American girl. Is like, it, yeah, yeah, j- just a little bit because I, I think when he he drops her off, he's just like uh, she's like, when will I see you again? He's like, that's my favorite soul song from the seventies, girl, or like whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it just sideswipes the entire. And, and she's like, there. like she's clearly got like hearts in the eyes for him, mm-hmm. and, but and he's treating this more as like a mentorship type thing, yep. which is where you you sort of see how he took advantage of clearly that she was completely how had over heels for everything yeah. that he would say but yeah i actually didn't even notice notice the outfit yeah that's, <laughs> yeah, that's funny <laughs> but when when so many of her looks are so iconic that true being kind of missing kind of stood out to me but yeah. um you said kung fu teaches you and you know other films it, it's about the spirituality of kung fu Yes. I think here you see the practicality of it because mm-hmm. she's when she's buried in that coffin, she mm-hmm. remembers training the three inch punch and she only has three inches to punch her way out of the coffin. And that's what she's able to do. And I just yes. want to say, like you talked, I, you guys talked about the sound design of this film on the uh, on of Kill Bill Volume One, but it's very good. In Kill Bill Volume Two as well, the sounds where like they're pouring the dirt on our coffin, oh like, yeah, it, it just it's so crunchy and like just loud and like no one, they really took their time with it and her punching her way out of that coffin, the sound of it, the gasping and that shot under the dirt yep. where you see um, her like trying to escape her coffin is just a really really uh, good uh, scene. Yeah. It's been done tons of times, but this is one of the 
best ones I've seen. Oh, oh and, sure. and when she crawls out like completely zombie like, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's been have, like, she's been reborn again. Like, goddamn girl. <laughs> yeah, like when I love that sequence where it shows the last little bit of light in the coffin, oh, and yeah. it's just the last nail, nail in the thing. Oh, and those then nails going it's just in, completely yeah. black. Like he doesn't cut away or do anything. Mm-hmm. He just ha- lets you lie with her essentially while she's being buried. It's really frightening. Like I have a big fear of that. So yeah. that was a, a big part. For well, me. And, and, and another cool touch is when she's actually in the bed of the truck before she's in the coffin. He highlights sort of the uh, uh, the claustrophobic nature of what's about to entail by oh, actually. The four by three? Yeah, he goes by yeah. the four by three framing Very while cool. she's in the coffin briefly. Yeah. And then when he throws her out of the bed of the truck, uh, that's when it expands a little bit. And, she, and she's like, yeah. oh, I have some hope. And then he's like, JK, we're throwing you right into yeah, the coffin. You, you got a mace or a flashlight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and w- what's interesting, I'd say, though, that Kill Bill does differently, Kill Bill Volume 2 does differently uh, as well, is that the slight tone change it makes, because you said that it was a little bit more comedic. I mm. also think that it's a little bit more, because uh, obviously Leone has a huge impact on Tarantino just in general, um, uh, you know, all of his conversations. This one gave me more of a does. Western But vibe. this does have yeah. a little bit more of a, of a you know, the, the, the retribution, retributive Western to it. For sure. Um more so than the um, uh, the the Shaw Brothers one because Which is be, more in series one or volume one yeah because yeah. volume one the huge Definitely. set piece the iconic Crazy Eighty Eight set <laughs> yeah. piece the action here is not like that no, the no ac- not at all um, you know, and you know he it's it's more direct it's more enclosed yep. it's more sometimes it almost feels a little bit more brutal sometimes just because it's more intimate yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's very and it's it's, it's almost, just different. I don't think there's even a group fight in this. It's all one on one. Like every single thing is very intimate in that sense. Yes, because she because she escapes and uh, she heads back to uh, get revenge on Bud, who mm-hmm. put her in the coffin in the first place. Uh, but when she goes back there, uh, L, the uh, eye patched assassin, yeah, um, probably the least humanized assassin, and maybe California maybe one Mountain of the snake. few <laughs> weak points for me for the film was was L. Oh, a uh, weak point. Just because I feel like of all of the assassins that mm. Tarantino sets up here, and that he does really make this about how all of these you know these cartoonishly brutal violent assassins kind of have human human aspects to them l is the only one who doesn't really get that which makes it i think she does really does i think yeah i'd be curious to hear the reason why she kills bud because she's offended that piece of shit like him killed the bride she has such respect for her that she killed bud uh her former lovers you can assume Mm. um brother because he had not earned the right to murder her and so she, uh, like, I felt like she just has such respect for her. And, you know, Daryl Hannah's a little bit older than Uma Thurman. I felt like she was, like, at one point she was kiddo. She's gone through everything kiddo has done. She just never, she just didn't leave Bill. I feel like that subtext is mm. there because she is blonde. And we talk about, and in the later scene, we talk about how much, you know, Bill likes blondes. It's not, uh, it's not meant to be a secret. So I think <laughs> there's something too and she went through the same training too that uh yeah because she talks about her experiences did. with pai may and that she kills because she eventually right right that's a good point because she was very mad at pai may and for my, taking her eye yeah <laughs> my yeah my wife said something interesting she was like well daryl hannah's you know she's cooler than kiddo because she stood up to that to pai may 
She didn't let him treat her like crap. She actually spoke back while the kiddo was that just while the bride point, was just actually. scared. So she, so she, my wife had much more respect for Dara Hannah's character and really hoped she lived, which we don't know. She may have lived because at the end where they're crossing, she just the leaves lane, her screaming, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They get there's yeah. a actual, and after the credits, there's a question mark over her name, over where she lives. So I think there's a little bit more to. Her, if there was ever going to be a Kill Bill Bottom Three, I'm sure she would uh, show mm-hmm. up. What she's uh, he's always floated as a possibility. Mm-hmm. He's always wanted to go back to it. What do you think the difference then of like respecting the fighter or whatever would be between her respecting Kiddo and her totally disrespecting Pai Mei? <laughs> Is it just because Pai Mei was very because rude she and very... because she does poison Pai Mei? Yeah, yeah. Like, and she even says something like she says something very disrespectful specifically to Kiddo about mm. Pai Mei and wants to disrespect him. I, I can't remember the line. But. She, she just kind of wants to upset the established mm, yeah. order, basically, seems like what she wants to do. She For feels sure. like she hasn't got as much maybe out of the lifestyle as was promised to her. Yeah, um, okay. But it, it is just interesting because I think most of the characters before they die kind of get like a slice of sympathy. And I feel like mm. other than the sheer brutality of what <laughs> uh, the bride does to her, there's not, you know, her last lines are like, I'm good. I killed your master yeah. and I am going to kill you. And I was like, whoa. Well, uh, well the is- thing is, she didn't die. So we don't yeah. know if she died. So we don't know if those are her last words. That's true. I guess yeah. I guess we'll see in the future. I think I get I get what you're saying, though. Mm. Uh, but I do think that, you know, what what Leslie's saying makes Makes a lot of sense too like i I feel like i feel like it's kind of a subjective thing there because um i just feel like that does stay true to her character you know she Mm -hmm. does seem like she's just kind of fucking fed up with (laughs) everything that's gone on so yeah i I like both but it but it is it is interesting because you see a lot of other people sort of being crushed by forces and if anything you actually see kind of power yeah she's just (laughs) like she she seems to have learned to um, you know, actually fight back against mm-hmm. a lot of those forces, which mm-hmm. something like Bud seems to have been very and it susceptible doesn't seem to. Them. Really get to her mentally either, because she seems very stable. She mm-hmm. seems very focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, like she even has that scene where you know Bud is just like sprit, like going all everywhere because oh, the, he just the, got bit the, by the mambo. The, yeah, the, the, and she's the, just the poison reciting Wikipedia awesome. facts out of her notebook <laughs> to him. So it's like she's very calm and collected compared to the. Oh other yeah, ones the, the poison like snake bit is very western as well. Oh yeah, uh, and oh, I love the bit where she goes to open the door to leave the trailer, and mm-hmm. Uma Thurman is already. Her feet are in the air, flying oh, yeah, through the that, doorway. That's great. That's like my favorite shot of the movie. <laughs> and I, I love the fight that they have, though the fight that they have inside the trailer. Oh yeah. Um, because it's, it's such so, it's such a tight enclosed yes. space, and there's so many comedic beats that you get out of it. Because like the spit jar and like. Oh the, well, yeah. and I love the bit where she she tries to unsheath that sword, that Hanzo sword, like two or three times yeah. Uh, yeah. and she can't do it because she doesn't have space to lift her arms <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is which leads to a great sequence where they have to try to just use the six inches of blade that they that they have out to oh, try yeah. to cut each other's throat. and then they just start using the surroundings it's they try so drowning creative. each other in the cho- in the toilet yeah and then she flushes it so that she can get breath yeah, <laughs> exactly yeah it's amazing there's a lot of really great beats and a lot of attention to detail in the little fights that there are in this but there are you're right though there there are a lot of comedic beats. I found myself actually laughing quite a bit with well, the see, film. I think they're in the first one as well. I just think that the the first one, oh, for sure. the first one has a lot more. Uh, as you said, there was a lot more. Like it's one on a hundred, right? Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot less. Um, 
you know, attention time, really. on, on the yeah, tiny little details exactly. of, of the fight. She doesn't have time. She's got to get rid of these, some of these guys, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas here you see almost every beat, you feel it, you hear it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty nuts. And these are also like the, you know, the crazy 88s, they had more of that henchman feel. Whereas these guys are the, the big baddies, you know, the trained assassins. So these fights are going to end up being more intimate, a little bigger feeling. Yeah. Uh, regardless of the space involved. Well, and, and what she does, she pulls, pulls out the other eye, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Of, uh, of L. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because Pi- she says that I've killed Paimei, I've poisoned him and your master sucked. Uh, yeah. sorry. Uh, not even, doesn't even say sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. She, she just says, that. I'm going to kill you and take your sword. Um, and, uh, uh, the bride says, you have no future and mm-hmm. pulls her eye out. Uh, now she's totally blind and leaves her screaming, flailing on the, on the trailer floor while she goes to search for Bill. Uh, yeah. oh, I did want to mention one thing that I really liked. Oh yeah. Touch is, um, so when Bill is talking to Bud, but uh, Bill asked him about the Hanzo sword that he, um, that oh, uh, right. Bud had, and Bud says, "Oh, I, I pawned it for two hundred fifty bucks." You know? <laughs> <laughs> and Bill is just you know, Hanzo sword, and, and, you can, and you can kind of tell that uh, Bill's upset about it. We don't really know why. And then, well, we because in, in the first film, right, you, we see how important Hanzo swords are. Yeah, mm-hmm. because we see how spiritually, uh, like, we get that quick digression into how spiritual and important. The, you know the art of sword crafting actually is which is the few times that tarantino does something genuinely that you would see in a kung fu movie like this but yeah then you're right then we find out that bud actually never sold the sword mm-hmm. and the sword has an engraving from bill on it to to the only man i ever loved uh uh, from Bill, and so like he was, he just said that to kind of jab at him because they were on the outs at the time. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like he did have some sentimentality to him. He did keep that sword. He did, you know, still love Bill. I just thought that was kind of cool to find out after uh, minutes after he's already dead. Yeah, because that's the, that's yeah. kind of the last. Again, you you sort of see the human lives that these people lived uh, actually even go on after they're gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you see how all these people have affected each other, um, which is a really huge deal driving us into the final sort of like half hour, uh, of the film, which is the confrontation with, with bill, which is probably the best stuff in this movie. I mean, all the stuff leading up to it is awesome too. Um, and again, I almost want to treat these films almost as one film (laughs) because, because they, they do really speak to each other in really important ways that I really do think you lose, you lose stuff without having both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and this final confrontation with Bill really shades in kind of everything we've learned about all of the characters so far. Uh, and it says a lot about both, um, the bride and, and Bill, their former lives and everything that's kind of led them to this point. Um, But that is with the bride um, having kind of done a small digression into uh, hanging out with uh, Michael Parks playing uh, a, a Mexican man. Oh, uh, my God. And I love this scene so much. There's something about his, uh, like, just the way that he he carries his voice and everything. Well, it's and, just, and, and, it's and, almost and, calming, but you know that he's the creepiest dude that's ever been. Michael Parks <laughs> was a legendary actor, and Tarantino was uh, pretty right to, you know, give him all these scene che- scene chewery scenes yeah. that he gave him. Uh, I love the bit uh, that he has as the, the sheriff in death proof as well. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and 
Yeah, this guy's got range. Like, it's crazy. It's a, it's a really... I didn't even know it was him the first couple times I watched this movie, actually. I thought, you know, it was just I, I did is famous soon. Spanish uh, <laughs> actor, honestly. <laughs> honestly. I, I, I love his demeanor of this. It's crazy. I, I did as soon as Tarantino uh, let him just, like, not even be, be heard. Like, half the time you can't even understand exactly what he's saying because he's oh, yeah. just not enunciating yeah, at all. Yeah, at all. It's like he's hammered, but but still kind of yeah. conscious. Like, he's about to fall asleep, essentially. But what he does is he tells her, you know, if you want to find Bill, like, Bill just told me to tell you where he is. And she's like, bullshit. He's <laughs> like, yeah. no, there you go. Go go get him. Yeah. Uh, and he she arrives at Bill's place. Finally, we're at the... We're at the the titular killing of Bill. It's about to happen. Yep. She's come a long way. There's been a lot of flashbacks. There's been a <laughs> lot of heartache. Uh, we think we're getting our relief. Yep. Uh, and in a way, we you, you kind of do. You feel a it bit. for Thurman. There, there's some catharsis here. Yeah. Absolutely. You feel I, odd. I, actu- I actually think it's some of the most purely human and emotional writing that Tarantino has maybe ever even attempted. Oh, for sure. For <laughs> um, sure. Because what you don't expect, I think, after watching Kill Bill Volume 1 is that Volume 2 would just end in an elongated conversation sequence where two people who obviously uh, have feelings for each other part ways because they realize that they're bad for each other. Yeah. Um, and part ways in the most finalized <laughs> way you possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> no going back from this one. Yeah, because she, she breaks into Bill's uh, house, it's very big, nice house. Breaks in. She's like, I'm gonna chop his goddamn head off. Yep. And she 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 runs around uh, the place looking for him, and then she sees Bill, and then she sees a little girl, and the little girl is playing a game, shooting. They're they're playing the shooting game. Yep. <laughs> and she shoots mommy, bang, and she bang. calls her mommy, and she she has the realization that that's her kid, that her kid isn't dead, and that Bill actually had the baby safely while she was in her coma yeah. uh, and stole her. And Uma is just instantly shattered by that realization that she's had this very hard demeanor. She's had to do a lot of things uh, to go back to her old lifestyle that she was prepared to leave to come back and mm-hmm. end everyone who was a part of it. What I find cool is that too, is that she's not just, she has this amazing performance where she's both shattered to be, to have such a lie be told to her throughout her entire life and think the way that she has. And, and to be now happy. The whole world is shattered here in that sense, her, her, at least the reality she thought she mm-hmm. knew. But then exactly to also be so ecstatically happy that her <laughs> that her baby isn't dead and now she has her and daughter. And then obviously still but incredibly still angry. <laughs> yeah, and Bill's yeah. still there. And she can't tell her because the daughter's there and Bill knows that. Bill is doing mm-hmm. manipulation more than uh, you know anything he's ever done throughout the series. So yeah, Bill is strategically using her own daughter against her. Yeah, um, to to make this confrontation more um, uh, <laughs> just <laughs> juicier for him. <laughs> well, just yeah. uh, you know, l- less confrontational. It seems like well, yeah, yeah, but it also seems like he wants to just pile it on all the time. I don't know if that's just part of his ego. Or oh yeah, it's it just yeah, like, he wants to. Pro- prolong it he prolongs mm-hmm. it like because at no point does he say look we can make this work <laughs> you know yeah it's still a battle that. for him yeah for sure yeah like he he knows that 
one of them has to die, but, you know, why not have a little bit of fun first? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And especially using the kid who obviously doesn't understand the, you know, the, the history that's at work here and yeah. is just, you know, wanting to play. And she's been told she's been living with her dad and she wants to see her mom. Yep. Uh, and Bill's obviously hamming it up too, saying, you know, he's just like, I, I told her all about you. Yeah. Uh, you know, yep. this, the, the, this could be, you know, look, I, Bill, I'm Bill. I can be domestic. I can be domestic <laughs> yeah. as hell. Uh, Who wants a peanut butter sandwich? <laughs> Talk about Superman. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of really sweet moments here as obviously in order to placate uh, her daughter, they, you know, she she has to play along with, with, with Bill's sort of mommy and daddy uh, game that he wants to play. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of really uh, sort of like... <laughs> interesting conversations that they have uh bill explains that uh the daughter just comprehended the idea of mortality and of Mm -hmm. murder (laughs) by killing her her goldfish and obviously beatrix uh would be a little concerned about that because the whole reason she tried to leave bill was so that she wouldn't be a murderer (laughs) right and it also wasn't one of those things where the daughter was upset it seemed like the daughter knew how to she was like she was like oh yeah i stopped she knew how to answer questions too to 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 elongate it so she wasn't directly in trouble right away mm-hmm. because she didn't write it was like uh, oh well it was on the floor it's like well why was it on the floor this is a six year old <laughs> doing this so yeah it was I cool. very intentionally put it on the floor so I could stomp on it was, <laughs> right, was yeah. where they ended up getting ended to. up yeah exactly and, and I was like that's a but little she concerning. knew enough not to concerning. say it right away which is yeah very concerning <laughs> but we get this big confrontation and it's actually not that big it's mostly the talking and the fi- in the fight final fight scene. Bill does not get up from his chair. <laughs> no, yeah, nope. I don't think either of them do. No, nope. no, no, neither of them yeah. do. They just, they just do a, sam- a samurai sword fight very quickly. Like if you took all the fight scenes in this movie and just put them together, it would be like it would be like five minutes long. Oh yeah, none of yeah. the fights are very long, but they're very impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, the meaning behind the talking, like that scene, is just so tense and all the weird divergence going on about Superman and all this shit. Right. Oh and yeah. Bill, all the, all the beats that they have in the conversation between them is, is awesome. And it's really set up, um, by the sequence where she puts the daughter to bed and she's just like, do you want to watch a video with mommy or whatever? <laughs> she's, she's like, like I, I want to watch Shogun Assassin. Shogun Assassin. <laughs> yeah. Which if you've never seen a Shogun Assassin, I put it on my watch list uh, as soon as I heard it, it is, on the film. It's so much fun. I, I have to go back and watch all of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies because I've only ever seen the first one. You, I remember your description was something like synth... Uh, Since what was it? Carnage Fever Dream is yeah. Shogun Assassin because it's, <laughs> yeah. it takes seven films of Lone Wolf and Cub. That's how many there are. It takes right. all seven of them and it cuts them all into like a 90 minute feature of just all of the, the, the bloodletting and the, the craziness. And the whole point is that it's this, this lone wolf and he's got his little baby on his back and he's just killing the shit out of people. That's uh, insane. And Shogun Assassin was a re-edit and American dub of the film in the eighties oh, to make okay. it more of like, sort of like a, like a, like a neon craziness. It's super short too. It's like 85 minutes or something. Yeah. And they, they cut seven movies into that length. Like that's yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. I was like, wow. So that's, oh, that's what Shogun crazy. Assassin is, and the the synth score in Shogun Assassin is 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 awesome. Yeah. Um, and we get a really sweet moment where uh, the daughter's like, uh, like, did did I dreamed of you every night or whatever? Did you dream of me? Mm-hmm. And obviously the bride's like, like, of course I did. So the bride I think is super relieved, obviously that her daughter yeah, is, is alive, alive. Yeah. and she just has to eliminate Bill. 
and that's yeah. that, that that's what she has to do so she has a confrontation uh conversation with with bill where bill as leslie said is going on about superman and i love his bit about superman because oh yeah um, it's so something that Tarantino would say, mm-hmm. but it's also a completely juvenile understanding of the character of Superman. Oh, yeah. uh, because the I whole, don't know much about Superman. Besides well, because it, the- it makes what he says is true. And that's the thing that's really important about the whole conversation is that almost everything Bill says in it is true. And it's it's uncovered by the uh, the truth serum. Yeah. That he even confronts her about all of the things that he says, and she confirms that they are all true, everything that he's saying. And she right. said, you are extraordinary. You are Superman. Um, and Superman, it's pathetic that he puts on his costume as Clark Kent, and Clark Kent is a coward. He is Superman's critique of mankind, that they are, they are uh, small, they are anonymous, they are cowards. Uh, and and, 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 you, and okay. you wanted to be like that, but that's not you. That's untruthful. Um, and so you, you think his his view of it is a little bit too pessimist in a way. Well, his his thing that he, his reading of the situation that completely uh, which makes sense with his character, mm-hmm. but is a complete oh, yeah, misreading sure. is that Superman specifically chooses to do it for very human reasons. Okay, for sure. Which is exactly sure. the thing, is that even though he's right, that Beatrix maybe didn't think that that lifestyle that we saw at the beginning would work, the one where she's a complete normie marrying a doofus that works at a record store, mm-hmm. maybe that lifestyle wouldn't have worked, but she made the choice to do it anyway, and that yeah. should be her decision. Yeah. Um, and yeah. not only that, but Clark Kent... The whole reason for his existence is that he didn't know he was extraordinary until he was an adult. Yeah. He grew up an unassuming farm kid in America. And that not was understanding just why he was the way he was. Well, and, and, and that's that's just it, is that Superman loves mankind, and that's yeah. why he chooses to dress up like Clark Kent. Because he doesn't, it, because, because he doesn't have he the ego. Us. Yeah. He's, I, but Bill views it as he pities us and he and he thinks that we're pathetic. And, exactly, and, yeah. that is not at all Superman, and that. Okay, but, I, but I, it, I get what you're saying. But it speaks sure. to Bill as a character because that is a reading that benefits Bill's worldview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and that's pretty much what he does. You know, he just he can he Bill is a master of spinning any anything into uh, something that's beneficial for him and his doing. So. Yeah, exactly. Even though it completely involves taking um, humanity and agency away from another person who he claims to love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, his his I, I, my, the best line that he gives for just uh, the only line really that explains what happened is that you know I'm a murdering bastard, bastard, and there are consequences for breaking the heart of a murdering <laughs> bastard, yeah. and that's it. There's no other like justification. Uh, for what he did, for killing her, murdering her friends, her would-be husband. It's just that, like, you broke my heart. What did you think was going to happen? Mm-hmm. Like, I am just this, like, force of nature. And, like, if you don't do what I say, there will be drastic consequences for it. And you don't have any choice in it. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. He almost acts like he doesn't have any choice in it. He doesn't imply that he has any choice in it that he could have gone a different way like this is just this is who i am this is who you are you tried to stop being who you truly are and i had to punish you for that because of who i am 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and even at the beginning, he's like, he's like, what you think owning a record, uh, a record store with your boyfriend is better than going around the world and killing people for vast amounts of money? You know, like that kind of thing. That's just yeah. that's just him. That's what he loves, and he can't understand anyone else yeah. that doesn't understand his viewpoint. Well, see, and and an amazing flashback we get during this conversation though does kind of clarify that is because not only she was choosing that obviously for her potential daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, or for her, you know, now actual daughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but she realized while on a mission that she was pregnant and this great moment where another assassin breaks in and wants to kill her. Uh, and she says, I found out literally two seconds ago that I'm pregnant. You're a woman. Please understand that I don't want to be in this assassin situation mm-hmm. being pregnant. Just please understand that can we be cool and and there's she also says i didn't want to give her to you Mm -hmm. like he she wanted it wasn't just like oh i can't live this life it's too dangerous for my daughter it's like i don't want my daughter to become another one of bill's vipers and Mm -hmm. i kind of think she probably failed at that Uh, well yeah well she bill Bill definitely got some claws in there yeah, like everything we know about the daughter, like the, from the Shogun Assassin to the murdering the goldfish, mm-hmm. it suggests to me that um, she really didn't, probably didn't succeed. Yeah, well, because and uh, and she she does kind of have they they move outside where they're going to have a possibly a, a, a an epic sword fight at at sunrise or whatever that they're going to have, and they continue the conversation a little bit, yeah. uh, and then this is finally when you know she you know they're having this back and forth where she's, she's both, you know, still obviously has feelings for bill and, and, you know, they've, they've kind of come to the mutual understanding that, you know, they both are who they are and this really just wasn't going to work. And <laughs> Bill's like, look, I overreacted. at least it's that you know (laughs) at least he has a moment of like you know what maybe i went a little too far a tiny bit of calm down yeah (laughs) yeah and 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 he and he says you know all those people that you killed that felt damn good didn't it like you're not we we do have similarities here and what's awesome is that she just straight up murders the shit out of him and that's that's kind of what we're left with finger Pi Mae's five-finger exploding heart technique. That's the name of it. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) Such a kung fu thing. Like, he taught you the secret technique? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. He taught no one the secret technique. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he taught me. Yeah. Then he takes... That's a a great moment, too. He he takes five steps or whatever. And he accepts it, too. He's kind of just like... He's like, how do I look? It's like, you're ready. Like, you're ready to... You're ready to go. Yeah. You're ready to oh, go. You're ready to die. He, he, yeah. he, he takes the death with dignity. Yeah. And he yeah. collapses on the lawn. Yeah. Um, and we kind of get a callback to a line that we didn't get to address um, in uh, earlier that Bud delivers, though, which is kind mm. of like the uh, thesis of the movie a little bit is, you know, at the, at the end of your days, you kind of look back at your life and he, he, asks, he poses the question, which R are you filled with, relief or regret? Oh, yeah. And that's kind of what happens at the end of this film is she's finally killed Bill. She's done it. The mission is over. And yeah. we get a, sort of a, a brief sequence where she's in a motel with her daughter. Um, she's alone in the bathroom. And, and she's alone in the bathroom. And hysterics, and, and, really. And, and you get the, the top-down shot that sort of uh, replicates the shot when she's actually in the almost a cell in Pai Mei's thing where she's just like yeah. very... Uh, 
like she's she's sort of cut off and she's there obviously not letting her daughter see her that way uh right and and she's she's completely filled with both relief and regret is, yeah the, the, is the crying idea. and laughing is just it's so the because performance be, too because like, that's what Uma that's what l uh says is that i'm filled with a little bit of both and he says that that's you can't ever be just filled with both you feel one more than the other one mm-hmm. uh uma thurman seems like she's filled with relief <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh for sure but also we understand because of all the humanity that's been given to bill and how much affection she clearly had for she bill, still feels we, like she's lost things yeah she's yeah. she's she's made she's you know she's accepted the cost but there was a lot of cost right. to her journey but i guess <laughs> what is the most relieving part is when we just see her you know she walks out sits down with her daughter and they just watch tv and smile and you're just like Oh, that's nice. Like just after all this carnage you see, you're just yep. it's it's relieving for you as an audience member as well. It's, it's But see, I'm I'm also of the mind a little bit with with Leslie too where I I I don't think that Tarantino think it's not hints quite at over? it. Yeah, I don't think oh, that, I, for sure. I think that. Yeah, but I, I just I, think at least this chapter in her life she yeah, can move it on definitely from, is at least for a little while. <laughs> but I'm I'm with Leslie on the idea that I think that the, you know, that there there is a little open-endedness to the the kid because we did Absolutely. the few bits we did get to see with the kid are that she's very sweet but that she's very calculating and understanding yeah. and she's capable of some weird yeah. shit absolutely <laughs> and you but you, you know it's all so is uma so yeah. the, 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 either way the main thing is is that the lone wolf has been reunited with her cub, <laughs> with which cub. is which is what the, all is right which is jungle. what i think the the, the text comes up and says yeah, at the end all is right in the jungle i think yeah which yeah. is a, a great end to uh both films yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, I think that might wrap it on on Kill Bill. Uh, Leslie, this is the part where we enter the what we call a reductive rating round, which I don't know how you star rate films, but we go between one and five. One and five. So what okay. we do is as a way to sort of rank all the films that we that we cover. This is how you get on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. To- this is how we do <laughs> it. We're getting there. Uh, uh, for for me. Kill Bill Volume 2, I give it a solid, a real solid 4. I think I 5 nice. Kill Bill Volume 1, and my only yeah. explanation as to how that that's a thing is that I do think um, I felt a lot more pathos in the um, uh, exploration of Oren um, and of the scene with Vivica A. Fox at the beginning than I do a, with, with Bud and Elle. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the only things uh <laughs> that basically uh affect this film for me because i love the stuff with pi may and i love the stuff with bill and that's the rest of the movie so yeah. like the, volume two is actually incredibly simple um despite the fact that it is longer than volume one yeah. uh and volume one also gets a little bit of edge for having one of the best action sequences uh, yeah. of the you know the 2000s <laughs> yeah um but that's basically it i really loved volume two for a lot of the reasons that we said i think that it sheds uh, a lot of light on volume one specifically and the emotional undercurrent to all these characters um especially by you know um humanizing bill and and sort of letting us get uh, a, a picture of the bride and bill uh together and uma's performance uh in both films is incredible but as- especially in this one and david carradine as bill um oh, so good. amazing yeah 
I wish I wish we got more of him, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, what are some of his mo- like bigger films that he stars in? Because this might be one of his best performances, but I don't I don't want to say that just because I haven't seen too many of them. Uh, there, well, uh, he, he's mostly known for Kung Fu, the okay. TV show. Yeah, which we talked right, about on right. the uh, yeah, he did Kung Fu, the TV right, show. Right. Uh, and I, I would say Death Race 2000, but uh, he plays Frankenstein in that movie. Uh, <laughs> and he basically looks like the gimp from Pulp Fiction. Like he's dressed in like an all leather getup. Nice. Uh, so <laughs> that's awesome. It, it, either way, you, you can't see a lot of David Carradine in 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 that one. But yeah, <laughs> no, vol- vol- volume two works, uh, you know, like like gangbusters and again it's some of the most purely emotional work of tarantino's career and i honestly wish that he would do some more of it i really like it i think that it's uh uh you know it's it's very unironic which is you know i think tarantino gets a lot of shit sometimes for being ironic even though i think also that stuff works for him too but there's um, some stuff in there like like the uh once again the l and like the close-up and like oh kill joe master and shit like that yeah it works still in service of the film uh, but for you, Leslie, how's that rating going? I think I still get, I give it a four. I came in thinking I would give it a five, but mm. I, the more I think about it, the more like I know Quentin Tarantino can do better because I think um, his last two films are better than this one. So if I gave this a five, interesting. Like, you you, you like Hateful Eight more than this? Yeah, I like Inglorious Bastards and Hateful Eight more than this. So I would have to give this one a four so I can mm. give those a five. Ah, there you go. Nice. Uh, I'm all, I'm gonna give it a four as well. Uh, I just the, uh, the first volume is a little stronger for me, uh, but I love how he just kind of strips. You'd think I wouldn't, but I love the way that he just kind of strips the action from this film and makes it all about the character. And uh, exactly, I see, really see, feel the, for everybody. That was in this, that was my including thing too, the people I didn't think I was going to. Normally, so. when a movie strips back and complicates character stuff and goes for the emotional stuff, like that stuff works better for me. And I would hmm, say that this yeah. it does in that regard. But I'd say the two films are just kind of so different in what their approach is and i honestly do think that you kind of do gotta watch them in tandem Um, yeah oh absolutely yeah that that they they do speak to uh each other and the stuff that works Mm -hmm. here is interesting and how it complicates one and the stuff that works in one is uh interesting for how it complicates two so it's just like yeah you know i agree so so yeah for me and i'm right there with you leslie it's almost a five for me but Mm -hmm. uh it's just when, Tarantino can some do of better. His other films, exactly like like you said, Inglorious Bastards. I actually did like this one more than The Hateful Eight, although I still really like Leslie. The Hateful Eight. But uh, but yeah, so this will be a four for me. I gotta ask you, how do you feel about Death Proof? Oh yeah, Death Proof. Um, I don't really rate it to be honest. No. Like, oh okay. I, like I, I don't I, when I, I like I watched both those films and it was like. I, I watched them and that was it. Like I did, I never <laughs> felt the need to go back and watch them. I don't really oh, like count them. I don't count them as part of Tarantino's. You know, interesting. Because I because I, 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 I love Death Proof. Yeah, I really I don't think I like it as much as you. Like it's yeah. yours, it's a five for you, right? Well, because that's Tarantino. It's, it's the only time me. he's ever operated in like the the voyeuristic slasher. It's yeah, almost like yeah, yeah. it's almost like Tarantino <laughs> doing the <laughs> De Palma really thing it, yeah. with Kurt Russell as like this you know this. Uh, um, motoristic uh slasher, slasher villain yeah. oh it's oh. i see it more as like him doing like a tv movie like it's his <laughs> like i put it right there next to the csi episodes like that's fine i'll watch it but like, <laughs> i don't feel the need to like Dude, rate it against savage. like ignorant bastards or anything like it's fine like like i, I there's people i like in it there's scenes i like in it but it's just like 
it's okay. It's a movie called Death Proof. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what yeah. All that's right. Awesome. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for Kill Bill. Yeah. I guess we're going to jump on one. into it. Or I guess we're going to jump right into Lady Snowblood. Let's do it. All right, we are talking Lady Snowblood, the 1973 uh, Japanese revenge splatter period thriller yeah <laughs> many genres for this uh directed by toshia fujita i don't know if that's correct uh but starring maiko kaji um who was also the star of female prisoner which was the mm. other film that we obviously talked about we've mentioned already that it's we fantastic. talked about with Bill volume one female prisoner is honestly one of my favorite movies that we've talked about on the show yeah, so far too. um uh and uh maiko's just amazing uh, she plays she's both so the titular good. female prisoner 701 in that, and in here she's the titular Lady Snowblood. Her stare is just piercing. Like, it's oh, absolutely, yeah. it's just cold. It's Those ice. eyes are oh, yeah. unbelievable. It's crazy. Uh, and this film is based uh, apparently on a manga series of the same name, which actually oh. kind of does make a lot of sense for some of the stylistic choices, which, um, you know, for the 70s, I think, were considered pretty avant-garde, especially in uh, Japanese uh, filmmaking at the time. Just thinking specifically of the... Because uh, what Tarantino borrows from this the most is it's sort of like flashback within flashback structure and like yeah. kind of broken up into uh, chapters with like archival footage and like paintings and like yeah. uh, it's it's a really and then even the technical aspects of the zooms oh, yeah. and then I think he even rips like two songs. songs directly from the, the flower theme. of carnage song which yeah. is the opening song of the film sung by Michael Kaji, the same Who way. Who also sings in Female Prisoner, right? Yep. Doesn't she have a song? Yeah, yeah. This is a female right prisoner. Song. What a talented woman. Holy <laughs> hell. She's very talented. Yeah. Very talented. My God. Yeah. Did she have fight training as well by any... Do, do I mean... Know? I mean, I'm sure she did in some way, but maybe like even background that she had nothing to do with the film. She didn't have to do a lot in this, which I kind of found interesting. Yeah, a lot of it was camera work, the way they angled things in the shots. Yeah, more so the, the thing that I found most surprising things. watching this for the first time was how much handheld photography was in it. Oh, for because, sure. Because that's a thing that Tarantino uh, does not abide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, none of that in Kill Bill. Um, but most of the action in this is surprisingly handheld when she actually does it. Mm-hmm. And she does these very sort of just very simple, graceful, sudden movements, and that's basically it. And then all of a sudden, people are exploding out their chest. <laughs> the blood is everywhere. I, I, I love cried, the effects. I cried when she stabs the dude in the back, and I'm like, okay, well, it would never come out of a dude's back. And then she pulls it out, and it comes out it's of the just, dude's back. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> I view it almost as, like, it's it's kind of just expressing how life is leaving them. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's so violent, and it's so abrupt for these guys that it's like, you know, that's just what it's representing, the blood yeah. leaving them at a Cl- rapid pace. Yeah, clearly Tarantino took both from manga and from this when it came to the actual splatter effect that you saw in Kill Bill yeah. Volume especially, 1. Yeah, Volume 1, yeah, especially. Um, like that one iconic, uh, where the girl gets her arm cut off. It was very reminiscent <laughs> of that, yeah, where it just <laughs> splurting out blood crazy. It was awesome. Um, but this film uh, has a, a pretty neat opening, 
um, where it's just uh, this very sort of like mythic childbirth sequence mm-hmm. where there's this the these these shades of, of white and red and they're sort of in a you know like a like a small I don't know if they're in like a like a I think small, it's a prison isn't it it's a prison yeah it's it is a prison, prison with, the, with the bars kind of yeah and you and <laughs> you get the the snow coming outside and you get the 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 blood obviously from childbirth and there you go she's the she's yeah. the lady snowblood <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What I find interesting, and I don't know if they actually reveal it in the first little sequence here when, when she's mm-hmm. being born, but it, it's kind of like that set that what they're saying in, in Kill Bill, which I guess would the theme would be directly referenced to this, mm-hmm. which is she was almost destined to become, you know, this this vengeance driven oh. person because the, the yeah. mother pretty much like, you know, in a sense, I guess puts her spirit into her child so that revenge well, can be exact. I think while she's giving birth, she says that you are an Asura demon. Right, uh, something like that, yeah. She, yeah, and, and it, it is an interesting note because the whole idea, I think, is that, um, and what becomes really important to the film overall is the idea that li- the Lady Snowblood um, was, was born into this trauma was yeah. born into this uh, revenge mission mm-hmm. that she was gifted it to. She's, she's basically inherited her own mother's trauma and has to deal with that. Yeah. It's um, even uh, darker and deeper than that because she was conceived for it. Her mother specifically. <laughs> that's got true. That's revealed halfway through the movie. That's a good for point. This pur- purpose to make her, her instrument for vengeance, her vengeance, mm-hmm. a demon to uh, extract her, vengeance upon the people she's trying to kill like this is why she has her um and it's really (laughs) yeah it's really spiteful it's really dark really fucked up uh and so this movie is kind of a lot more straightforward a revenge thriller than kill bill is because Mm. lady snowblood knows nothing else but this mission this is all she has ever been cared about or been trained or born to do she has nothing but this Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point yeah, that's that. That's a, a really important distinction between um, the two films, especially as it goes on, because you specifically we don't get a lot of human shading of Lady Snowblood. Yeah, it feels like there is no choice a little. Whereas it feels like Beatrix maybe had a choice somewhere down the line. Yeah. Whereas it feels like Lady Snowblood, well, there's none. What's interesting is that y- you honestly get more personality or like sort of like uh, you know recognizably human moments. From the people she's murdering. <laughs> yeah, 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 straight up. Yeah. That she is, she is the just an absolute force. Uh, who we see after um, this flashback of her being born, she's got her little umbrella that has a little uh, sword that she can pull out of it, yeah. uh, and she just starts cutting throats. Uh, she starts stabbing people, and there's like arterial spray everywhere. It's splattering the walls. It's gushing. Yeah. And then like uh, the guys, one guy even says, uh, "Like who are you?" And she just replies, "Revenge." Yeah, like, <laughs> she's just like cold. It's a blunt instrument. Uh, yeah, entirely. Just a killer. Uh, and I love the, that '70s neon bright blood. Oh yeah, yeah, just like <laughs> so bright, vibrant so paint. Like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, the way that they light it is just so much fun to look at. Um, <laughs> Uh, it looks like they just melted crayons on everybody. And oh, it's yeah. Just out. It's so <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah, it's so, it, it's so good. Uh, and I did really find it interesting that while this is happening, they do give you that sort of, like, um, immediate rawness of, of handheld photography to show this to you because it's really mm. cartoonish murder. Uh, it's literally inspired by comic book murder. Okay, um, right. 
And is this kind of also what's directed? And I think it's in Kill Bill One, which is when it's the animated uh, part, and there's all that like crazy amounts of blood gushing out from the enemies. Yeah, that... maybe it's it's very possible that Tarantino went back and read the Lady Snowblood manga and was very yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh no, well, that that gushing blood is uh, that's kind of a staple in both mm. anime, manga, and you know these samurai movies. I'm not okay. sure. I would uh, probably assume it came first from the films, but I, I'm not really sure. That uh, but mm. yeah, it's kind of a staple, so it's everywhere in the culture. Um, oh yeah, that kind of kind of sprays uh, that spray style of blood. And but I actually like it a lot better here. I didn't really like it as much in Kill Bill too, because Tarantino he just goes like hog wild, like, <laughs> where, where it becomes like. So I could actually watch Lady Snowblood, and if I didn't know how the human body worked, I could believe that kind of, right? But in Kill Bill Volume 2, it's obvious that it's just like, no, there is no way. There's no way that, that the blood was even in that person when, yeah. uh, in, in Volume 1 when it's the <laughs> oh, anime yeah. sequence. Oh, yeah. And it starts, like, dripping through the the bed and, like, yeah. onto, like, the it's little literally Lucy a Lou's eye. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the, the sort of main distinction here as she kind of goes on her journey is that she does forego all the human emotion. She is just pure karma, I guess. Pure. <laughs> and, and, and almost to her detriment because when she meets the um, uh, Kobue, uh, um, the daughter of Kobue, um, she meets her and is kind of nice to her. Um, and asked her her name, and then is shocked to find out that she's the daughter of one of the men she wants to kill. Yeah, ta- Takimusha and, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, yeah. And, like, in most movies, you would see a scene where she struggles with whether, should I do this? She, she, her, she relies on her fa- father, et cetera, et cetera. Lady Snowblood does not. She is still, like, on her path to vengeance. She doesn't really care. She just sees this as a possible complication, which it is when we see uh, towards the end. Mm-hmm. But uh, it does not derail her um she still is intent on killing him quite brutally actually as he uh, begs for his life yeah and mm-hmm. and drowns in uh basically his own blood with mixed with water and he just sits there and drowns in it uh, yeah which is and pretty- then she dra- she pulls the body out of the ocean to drag him up and put him on display <laughs> yeah yeah i i think that that becomes sort of the main drama of the film is that you know we, we, we noticed uh, in in volume one that uh, that film really addresses the fact that Beatrix, instead of at the end of the revenge movie acknowledging all the consequences that she's uh, and and rippling traumatic effects that she's you know causing around her, um, he, Tarantino kind of frames that at the beginning, uh, and and here this is also the dramatic crux is that we see the sort of things unfolding in her very sort of blinded. Um, inherited revenge mission that there are sort of kind of nice people getting caught up in it. Yeah. Um, and Just what relations. Yeah. And, and what kind of happens is that there's sort of a, a bit of regret of what kind of life is going to be like for her post her mission yeah. is, is that she doesn't even consider that uh, until, you know, sort of like three quarters of the way through the film um, when we get sort of a, she thinks that maybe she's completed her mission um, yeah. later yeah, in the film. The- and then she just finds someone else to kill. She just yeah. tries to kill one more person. <laughs> yeah, like, because because I, I think someone asks her, like, you know, you get to live a normal life now. And I and I literally, my note was, what the fuck is a normal life yeah, to this like person? She, I don't think she would <laughs> even be able to comprehend really what to do or where to start. I mean, she barely even has family. It seems like her only friend, too, is eventually a uh, a writer 
that is just intrigued by her he's story. A, he's a cool character, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, I think he's that he's a nice cool. touch. Because yeah. he's because he's where you get uh, Leslie mentioned at the top of the show that there's sort of a a sort of important Japanese political backdrop to this, and that he's an important character because he is someone very clearly anti the way that Japan is going. He's a journalist yeah. who is yeah. writing stories about these sort of you know warmongering um, businessman, um, especially one being his own father, which is probably yes. how he knows about it. Oh right, because they have that little. Darth Vader twist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where they're like, he's your father. What? Yeah. yeah. It's great. Um, and, and it makes perfect sense because the reason he meets uh, Yuki is because she is, goes to his father's grave and she's mm. upset because right. she's mad. And of course he was heading to his father's grave just to, you know, plant flower, or put flowers on it or whatever. Yeah. So meanwhile, she's that, like chopping the flowers up or something. Slicing the yeah. gravestone. Yeah. <laughs> She, she is real spiteful for good reason, obviously, but well, yeah, cause I guess that's, I guess we haven't addressed that yet, but the actual revenge mission is that, uh, three men and a woman mm-hmm. attacked her, her father that she never got to meet and killed him yeah. and then raped her mother. Yeah. Um, and then her mother got revenge on one of those four people by stabbing them in the back while having sex, while having sex. Also, um, might have been a reference. Well, while, while, while being raped, anime, I should say, while being raped. She oh, right. well, yeah, that. Be, yeah. That should be. Oh, wait, is it painted? Like I thought it was. Uh, maybe I just no, she I'm didn't have, misremembering. She didn't this have scene. a choice. Oh, no, okay. She yeah, she said he like he busted for me, so he direct, took me to Tokyo with him. That was oh right. right. So she she basically and then got eventually she just she just yeah. took an opportunity. Exactly. Wow. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, and that is what lands her in prison. Yeah. For killing that man. Then she says, well, well, now, fuck, I'm in prison for the rest of my life. I can't really kill any more of these people. So that's when she starts sleeping around with inmates in the prison, trying to conceive a child. Oh, with so that guard, the, guards. <laughs> oh, with right. guards. Yeah, yeah it's all, guards. all women, I think, is the prison, right? Same as female prisoner, man. Yeah. Japanese prisons in the 70s. I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I don't know. I mean, prisons like in general, dirt, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but especially prisons. there. Uh... But that's how she conceives the child so that the child can go on this revenge mission and kill the remaining three members. Um, So what we see uh, is she kills one who is the nice girl's father, the one that she drowns in the the river and then puts him on display. Right. Um, Brutally uh, kills that guy by, like, convincing the people he owes gambling debt to to just, like, give them to her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then, then she finds out that the sort of the, the, the main one or the, the, the mastermind, I guess, has died in a, in a shipwreck accident of some kind. Right. Uh, and, and she's that, upset too. Oh, like, she's, she's mad. She, she was like, I was literally vengeance. born for this. Yeah, like, she didn't want him out. to just die. She wanted it by her hand. Yeah. Yeah. So. It had to be by her hand. Yeah. And we, we see this, um, with the, her next, um, kill, which is when she, uh, the woman who was with them, um, and the mm. woman is apparently, you know, she's taken a bunch of money. So apparently, all these people were running like a, a scam where they would trick people, villagers into saying, if you pay us, you know, 270 yen, we will get you out of the draft um, for, of course, the upcoming imperialist wars of Japan. So, like, you had all these desperate people giving the their money to these murderous rapist con artists and they took all this money and like went about and start and some of them started businesses and 
uh, stuff with it. Yeah, well, because that's what's amazing is that the the dude who gets the most financially successful is a guy who invests in that imperial war, selling weapons yeah. and trying to, yeah. uh, you know, make it make it a thing. He's like, this is finally going to be, you know, Japan is doing this anyway. And we are going to make as much money as we can doing it. And I'm like, I don't know if Japan was going to necessarily. <laughs> I think I think the financial investment is a huge motivating factor <laughs> in yeah. a country choosing to do that. <laughs> yeah. So Okono is the woman that she kills mm-hmm. and she hires all these police officers to like work for her, do her bidding, torture the writer. Like, this is a very like anti-authority like film like mm-hmm. there's no trust for the government the police any of these ins- modernizing uh capitalist institutions when it comes to, uh to uh japan i thought like the politics of this film is uh very interesting like you wouldn't like see like you, you don't necessarily see like the co- i get anymore at least like the cops as like the main bad guys that the hero like s- brutally slices through because they're so corrupt um but i really like that that scene and that fight scene like the fighting style here is like it's so as you said it's just like almost like stop motions like yeah. frame by frame by one slice and that's it that guy's done like there's no <laughs> there's not a lot of back and forth encounters and stuff like like that it's just this really brutal really efficient uh way in that fight scene where she <clears throat> kills all the cops is really the first like big fight scene uh we get and it's really really uh good and really fucking bloody and but um, but unfortunately okono escapes and then she uh escapes for a bit and then she finds her hanging and then like yuki and yuki is actually kind of pissed off about it and so she slices her in half in the most gruesome (laughs) like effect and everything falls out coming Yeah. yeah i was like Oh damn, that's an effect. Like, because they don't—they just kind of have you sit with her and in her kind of rage, and you're almost like, oh, she's just going to accept that this is now—it's not going to be by her hand. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to get one slice in there, you know, and just takes the I, biggest side swipe I'm, I'm, ever. I'm going to get this one on a technicality. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I got her, everybody. For just for the books, I cut her in half. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love that her journalist friend um who is the son of the the sort of final dude that she has to go and kill when she finds out that he is actually still alive which is kind of like the big reveal later Mm -hmm. uh is like standing next to her when she does that and i'm like dog you you gotta know that she's she's not stable if you're if if she's making those kinds of decisions (laughs) yeah um but it doesn't stop him he's like damn i'm fascinated by this lady snowblood and i'm (laughs) writing great books out of her because she's such a cool character yeah um and immediately after that like a decorative curtain comes down yeah Yeah. that was great cool like so during this like era of like they call it pinky violence like these 70s movies they have all this weird like stuff in these movies like you saw in lady prisoners uh uh in prisoner scorpion like where the scene where she's uh being attacked by all the police officers where you go under the floor and then you zoom out and it's like a set uh, like obviously a set like they do all these weird like yeah like the wall uh, switch and all that yeah like yeah like the spinning wall to reveal oh, a from new female scene prisoner. and it's all in one shot yeah yeah it was very cool it's very uh almost stage like like a play or something like that mm, well and and <laughs> Like these movies are so like kind of like serious and fun, but they're also kind of playful too when it when it comes to how they present the films. Oh yeah, yeah. The no, style, they're, they're yeah. incredibly visually playful, which we talked a lot about with Female Prisoner, especially with like it's tackling some pretty brutal 
um, subject matter, especially with the amount of rape that takes place in that film. Mm-hmm. But then we were talking about especially like how um, the the main rape sequence in that features sort of like this this bright red lighting that comes up from the floor. It's like a glass floor. Yeah. And then the camera goes underneath the glass floor so that you can reveal all the faces of all the men like looking down at her basically. Yeah. And then her hair starts like turning into like this sort of like sun formation and <laughs> yeah. in actual stop motion style. <laughs> is it, you're talking about female prisoner. Female prisoner yeah. for that one because we, we, we mentioned that on that one. But like... Yeah, the, the visual style of both of these films is kind of what separates them because the, the subject matter is is very sort of heady stuff. And it's it's sort of in the the actual visual filmmaking um, that you get, uh, again, that, that sort of um, contradiction of the handheld style and the huge splatter effects. Mm-hmm. Um and again, uh, the structure of this film with its uh, constant flashbacks within flashbacks and and editing to brief digressions into the actual history of, yeah. of the time period and like seeming like we're seeing like murals from the time and stuff. Like it's really interesting uh, stuff. And from what I understand, this filmmaker actually never again became the stylish that they said that he, oh, really? that he made. This was like his like seventh or eighth film. And that everybody was shocked because it was he was a, considered generally just like a pretty traditional journeyman filmmaker. So oh, like okay. uh, he didn't do a lot of visual flourishes. Wow. And then after he did this film and its sequel, and which one, I haven't right. seen yet. Yeah, me neither. Um, but uh, after that, apparently he never returned to the style again. That's interesting. <laughs> Were these not? Uh, would these be his most successful films? Or or they or, must be. Yeah, they're, they're his most well known outside of Japan. I would certainly say. I'm not sure if. They're his most successful. He did a lot of mm. films that were um, like teen films. So like mm. some of them might have been like big hits that just wouldn't take off necessarily uh, overseas, depending oh, okay. on you know what kids were into at the time. For sure, for sure. <laughs> Guy was on the zeitgeist. Yeah, he was there for it. Um, but, but the big, the big thing that kind of takes place after that is because you kind of feel like the movie has almost come to a bit of a conclusion when she chops that yeah. last one in half. Right. Because um, she doesn't know that the guy's still alive. She yet, doesn't right? yet. We don't know that either. Okay. So she starts living with um, the journalist that she kind of had a bit of a rapport with throughout the film. Yeah. Um, and we start to see an idea of possibly what a normal life might look like for her. Although it's, it does feel something uh, like a little off about it. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel complete. You, I, I was sitting there wondering, like I was like, "Oh, there's more." <laughs> I, yeah, I did too because I didn't know that was what the was immediate happening. feeling I kind of had. But then I looked, then I looked at how much time was left, and I was like, "Oh, okay." There's got to be a little thing here, right? And he plays with it too because the writer is writing, and there's chapter headings, right? And this is and mm. chapter three ends. The curtain comes down, literally comes down, and then and the next like thing you see him. Like, ro- <laughs> yeah, the next thing you see him see is like. Uh, almost him writing on a piece of paper chapter four because he, because he's continuing the story of late think about whether to continue the story of late snowball well, because he actually knows obviously that his or he at least has some semblance of an idea that his father is still alive yes right and so he knows there's more coming and then later we get the real title card of chapter four for the film because mm-hmm. his, his his they're living in like a small Japanese town. And the father kind of comes in and is like, stop writing that book. Yeah. This story is over. (laughs) Uh, 
I don't want my head cut off. <laughs> yeah, this isn't this isn't gonna happen. Uh, and he's and this is where we sort of get revealed that the the father who is the the last guy on her hit list is the father of the man that she's sort of uh, taken up with, and also that her uh, that the father um, is sort of one of the main figures behind uh, consolidating power to kickstart this imperial Japan. Yeah. Um, which is like, we should probably kill him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and for now, more reasons than just the vengeance, I guess. Yeah. Well, and and honestly, there's almost a little bit of because we see a quick shot of her. I think she's like she's returning home. I don't know if she has groceries or something, but she was out doing something and she yeah. comes home. She sees that something is is totally off with um, the journalist character, and they have that eye lockdown in like close-ups where she's like where he's like he reveals that his father is still alive yeah. and that and who his father is. And, uh, there's, it, there's almost a little bit of like relief. She's like, the mission continues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's just right there. She's like, the fire's back in her and she's, she's right back at it. Yeah. Cause go for the revenge. Uh, th- there's not a lot of time spent establishing what her normal life might've looked like or how she might've adapted to it because it's just right just back bored. into it. <laughs> she's just sitting there while getting, buying eggs that day. And she's just like, man, I wish I had a head to cut off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she pursues him to uh, some sort of uh, ball, I guess. Ball, like a, pro- probably a fundraiser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's actually it actually is called a fundraiser. It's a fundraiser. Okay. Um, it's a charity ball for um, bougie Japanese people to mingle with bougie uh, foreigners. Um, mm. Right. And it's like, and, and I really like the like the class consciousness like of this because we opened the movie with like super poor people, but we ended with all these rich assholes who run the country and and they're all are frolicking t- around on the dance floor <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and they're they're staying in the pleasure palace i think they call that's it i called. think that's what it's called <laughs> that's amazing uh and yeah there's there's a lot of gorgeous camera moves as it kind of walks you through what this space looks like um and obviously we, we understand that this is a meeting place for raising money for these wars that japan is about to conspire with these westerners to get going um, and it, it does, you know, it, it, as Leslie said, it does kind of bring us from this, this brutal, uh, stark prison situation all the way to a ball. And this is how far Yuki, uh, or, uh, Lady Snowblood has come. Yeah. And she's finally like, this is where it's taken. This is where all of this pain that kicked off the film has come from, has come from right here. And I am going to eliminate this guy no matter basically what it what it takes. Yeah. Um, and she she has a confrontation with him, uh, right. kills the shit out of him, and yeah, then both J.K. Arms fly off. J.K. It's the dude's wearing a mask. Yeah. It's not him. It's great. It's, it's almost like uh, next week we're doing Mission Impossible. Yep. A yep. lot of that happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, shout out and, there. and there's the like the 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 one sided or the two sided glass or whatever yeah. it is, the mirror. Yeah. Uh, and th- she's like, he's there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I like that the journalist kind of comes with her to kind of help take out his own father because obviously because yeah, and it leads to almost him. I mean, sacrificing himself. Well, that's exactly what it leads to, which I think is one of the most probably important touches in the film. Absolutely. um, Is that together, the journalist and Lady Snowblood take on his father, um, who is obviously running this fundraiser, and uh, in order to, you know, actually get one on him, 
the sun holds him down, basically holds him down against the wall mm-hmm. and is just like, just, just, do just, it. just do it. I, I understand as a political journalist, how important this is. And I also understand to you personally how important yeah. <laughs> this is. So please just end it right here. And she stabs through the journalist and also kills the father at the same time. And uh, it's one of the few moments in the film that's a little revealing as to the, you know, the kind of emotional center I think this film might have had more of. Mm. Um, Because my one complaint when we get to it at the end is that I think that there might have should have been more scenes actually with her and the journalist. I almost wished I could have seen what the normal life could have been like because clearly what she's doing here. Just to see how she reacts with it a little more. Just just a little bit because because here what you see and I think it's a really effective devastating moment Mm -hmm. um, is the idea that she is in order to put to rest the, the thing that she was born to do. She has to eliminate any possible future she might have had basically yeah because the only person she really seemed to like was this journalist character and was this girl and these two people she completely ruins by doing her revenge mission she kills the journalist and then right after obviously that happens she goes outside and we get the the snowfall to be fair to be fair the journalist was already probably gonna be dead because his father shoots him like three times yeah (laughs) oh true right Right. i did forget about that detail well said (laughs) but there is a lot of visceral impact to seeing that sword go through him yeah. entirely and into the father. For sure. She shish kebabs the shit out of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and after that, she has to go, she goes outside, like, you know, she's she's wounded as well, and she's completely out of it, and it seems like on her mind is the idea of kind of like, it's over. And yeah. it it's almost feels like to her, the difference between her and... Um, uh, Beatrix's journey is that uh, rather than feeling relief, you don't get that relief from her. You feel like she's just like, I did it. But now what? Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't have any real meaning well, anymore. Well, I would say like judging by taking this film as like, as, as, as a standalone, I would say now she can die because she's mm. bleeding pretty heavily at the end of the film. She's been mm. shot. And then of course, uh, Koboe, um comes up and stabs her in the stomach. Um, the daughter of the man that she murdered um, or or the first victim of of hers. Exactly. And, you know, and like that is how it should be. How she and her story ends with her getting her revenge and her paying for that by being killed by somebody. By creating another lady snowblood. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, like in closing it. And that's how, and that's a, I think that's a really like, just perfect and you know profound ending like she doesn't even show emotion until almost like a minute after her walking bleeding through the snow Mm -hmm. and she just screams and clutches the snow and i think that would have been a perfect ending to the story of lace so 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 are are, are you not a fan of when it fades back in the last two seconds when she rises up again yeah they they should cut it, that out. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. no, I feel you. Because I, I think uh, there, I guess there's not really a sense of relief for her anymore. Just for her character, like you personally, because mm. now you see that even after all this destruction, and she, she, what you think is dead, uh, she comes back. So you're like, well, now she's wounded. She's killed all these people. She has to. She's forced to come back to life now and to live. So I mean, she has to find new meaning and. 
you're kind of mixed where you're like, yeah. I hope she does, but it doesn't seem too promising. So, yeah. Well, see, what, what's interesting is that I, I think you're right. I think that a better version of this movie would have cut those out. But having that moment in made me dream of a film <laughs> that had more time with uh, Koboe and yeah. with uh, the journalist character so that you could see that the same way earlier in the film when she realizes that she likes the daughter but then finds out that the daughter is that she makes the choice to kill her father brutally anyway i i wish we got that same kind of idea even more like that it was more hammered home and effective that that's what she does at the end here that she basically sacrifices any hope of a future or a normal life or a life just even after this mission that she sacrifices it, it all completely for this sort of visceral catharsis. And then at the end she doesn't get it. And I, I love the idea that she has to now live with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, the film doesn't seem to, to be on my side much. with yeah, that. Yeah. Like the film doesn't like actually do all of that, but it made me wish that that was what the film was doing. <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> Um, because the moments are there. It's just, you know, you, if you would have, you know, just, uh, sort of varied them out a little bit more, mm, yeah. um, carried I, out I just some, think at, the, at the end of the day, it's like, yo, so the bride is a person. Mm-hmm. Lady Snowblood is a demon. Yeah. Um, and, and that's all there is to it. Like yeah. once her task her, has been fulfilled, there should be nothing uh, left for her. Like what would a life be like? your normal life there's no such thing for her this is her normal life oh totally but see what i'm saying is that i would love to see the dramatization of a demon trying to have (laughs) (laughs) well what's the what's the second one do have you seen the second one leslie yeah i've seen the second one um and and it's good too like even though i think like you know thematically like she should have died yeah if you're going to make a second one the second one's still exciting basically she goes to prison and then the government says all right you're such a good killer if you ever want to see the light of day again you're going to be our killer and that's kind of jesus that's that's cool i think that at least they they found a way to make it still true to her character as well so i I mean Mm. they gave her another mission maybe that's what she was looking for yeah like there's another mission that she could understand she's it it honestly feels like kind of like what i like about sometimes what they're doing with these new bond movies is that they're turning Mm. they take this character and they make him into like just a blunt instrument that like different forces point in different directions Making him a lot darker than just like i'm the man and i've got gadgets and women you know well (laughs) it's it's interesting because they just really focus on this idea of like a brunt a blunt murder tool and that's the same thing they kind of do with her here that they and that you know it sounds like in the second one that they have sort of different political interest groups actually pointing her in directions in hope that they're going to get benefits out of it. And I'm, I'm sure that that doesn't end well. Yeah. <laughs> Leslie. Yeah, no, uh, no, it well. no, absolutely no, no, not. no, 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 absolutely not. It's just, uh, like she actually is made to point out. So it's, it's really, poli- these films are really political about, and they're reevaluation of the turn of the century of Japan. And so in this one, like she's hired by the government to kill like revolutionaries who want to like, um, like uh, fight against the modernization and imperialism mm. by the pol- uh, by police. It's uh, like, it's really cool to get like this, you know, kind of swacky genre flick with interesting politics, especially from a different 
country from a different yeah. from a country I don't know. Like it's it's really like informative. Like this is what people were thinking about in Japan in the seventies. Like where what what could have happened differently? The seventies were um, a real dark time. Yeah, for, it sure seems like it for uh, artistry and political thought at the time. Yeah, <laughs> they were feeling violent <laughs> in that decade. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that that might do it for Lady Snowblood. I guess we'll enter the reductive rating Let's round do on this it. one. For me, Lady Snowblood is a real high four. I really yeah. liked it. I was close to the five on it, I think. Mm-hmm. But I I did feel like I, that there were some really uh, effective moments that could have kind of fleshed out the idea of, um, you know, what Lady Snowblood's future looks like and i like the idea that she also that a future doesn't work for her but it seems like they make her they give her this idea of future characters they give her the journalist character they gave they gave her sort of the next generation of all of these awful people and how that they might not be awful people like there's a little bit of hope there yeah um and obviously this film makes um yuki make the active choice to ruin those people's futures and her own because obviously she was born into and inherited all of these um you know all of these nightmare scenarios uh and this vengeful mission and uh yeah the only thing straying me away from the five was that i i kind of just wish that it, it it laid that out a little bit more and that i made it made me feel a little bit more for that mm-hmm. um but that was the only thing i really dug uh a lot of the style happening here obviously n- enough can't be said about um michael kaji's performance uh in both this and female prisoner yeah, she's but, incredible but uh i think female prisoner gets the edge for me and maybe maybe that's an unfair comparison because that for me was like a super easy five i loved the yeah. shit at a female prisoner um but either way it this was a really interesting time in uh, Japanese uh, political history and uh, cinema. Mm-hmm. So it was awesome to go down the rabbit hole. What about you, Leslie? Um, you know, thinking about it, I would probably have to give it a four again because I would have to give Lady Prisoner uh, Scorpion a five. Um, I really like this film. I think it's a great film. But, at, but it is like... A much it's a very straightforward film it's about you know the blunt instrument a demon getting vengeance and that's kind of it and you have these political ideas in the background but she doesn't really participate in them she's just yeah. caught up in them with ladies with um female prisoner 701 you have um like so like you have a inner character a journey that she takes she uh mm-hmm. she goes from and when you watch the other films like you're you're, it's a shock. It's a really shocking journey because there. I think there's uh, there's four films in the series, and by the end, she's as much of a demon as Lady Snowblood is, and mm. possibly even even worse because of these situations she's been put in. So I would have to give uh, Lady Snowblood a four, only to leave room to give um, <laughs> yeah. her other film a five. And Fair. I just want to say, Mako Kaji is so brilliant and so so amazing, and I'm so yeah. sad because she actually got several offers to work in Hollywood, but she turned them down because she couldn't give a, she didn't think she could give a good performance in English. So we we miss, we may have missed out on a lot of uh, great stuff. Unfortunately, Um, I, I hope like I I can't imagine that Tarantino didn't try to get her to kill Bill. (laughs) I I can't imagine that he didn't try. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to give it a a four as well. 
Uh, I, I pretty much, I mean, the same reasons you guys mm. have given. Leslie, I think you have a good point with, I, I feel like it would have been a little stronger if it didn't have the last five seconds there. And she just, <laughs> she did die because when I did watch it initially, I was like, oh, she's, she's, my brain went, oh, she's going to die. And that's a really, you know, that's a satisfying ending for her character for this, you know, vengeful tale. But then I realized, oh, wait, I've got a duology here. <laughs> like there's a yeah. sequel. So, so she's coming back. Uh, and I guess the, the second one is, is good and uses her character correctly, but I do feel like it would have been a little stronger with her just kind of wrapping up the story there. Um, yes. but, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm amazed by this, uh, this actress. She's so fucking good. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. She's talented as hell with, uh, her singing too. Cause she did vocals mm-hmm. for some of the songs in this movie and in prisoner. Uh, the soundtrack is amazing. Uh, Tarantino liked it so much. He took some from it. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah the, 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 that's what I would say Tarantino took the most from this movie was its actual just like tone. Yeah, like, it, like that sort of Absolutely. flat, that flashback history structure along with along with these yeah. sort of like carnage meets uh, these sort of like interesting needle drops because there's like two or mm-hmm. three that happen throughout this film. Yeah. Um, and obviously the confrontation in Kill Bill Volume One in the snow, yeah. <laughs> which and is pretty just literal. Before we wrap up completely, a uh, little shout out because uh, Sid, uh, what's his name? Sid, Sid Hag. Yeah, he's just he's makes the a bartender. cameo, and yeah. I just love yeah. that because we <laughs> covered uh, um, Spider Baby, and he was a big part of that. So that was cool just to see him make a little cameo there. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's gonna do it for uh, this week's episode guys that was kill bill volume two and lady snowbud leslie thanks yeah. so much for bringing these two yes, films with you. you uh if you've got anything to plug this is the time to do it all right thank you so much for having me yes please check out struggle session uh, patreon.com slash struggle session we talk about movies music games wrestling everything in <laughs> nice. pop culture from a leftist perspective so i think if you enjoy this show you would enjoy uh our show as well sweet Sweet. Um, well, I think... Uh, what are we doing next week? Patrons. Next, we're doing Mission Impossible. Patrons. Next dun, week, dun, you guys dun, get dun. Uh, a bonus episode uh, where we're going to be talking about uh, the two sort of lesser talked about Mission Impossible films because this franchise has been going on for so goddamn yeah, long. Yeah. But you guys, there's a mission, new Mission Impossible coming out in... Uh, uh, a, f- a few weeks here, I think maybe even next week by Heard the time you guys hear this episode. Too, nice. Yeah, one of my buddies who saw it said that it was the best action movie since Fury Road, which tickled my interest a little <laughs> yeah, bit. So because I loved Fury Road, so I'm interested in seeing that. But so uh, to celebrate a new Mission Impossible, um, we are going to be talking about Brian De Palma's original Mission Impossible from 1996. Oh yeah, uh, the first film. Uh, which going back and watching it now, very different film from what these eventually became, but very for cool. real yeah, uh, style, very. stylistically, especially because we've talked about De Palma before on the show, very Hitchcock inspired, uh, stylish filmmaker. Uh, and we're going to be pairing it with John Woo's mission impossible <laughs> two, which is uh, a hell of a ride, <laughs> which, uh, honestly, everybody hates it. But yeah. goddamn, it's. I, I think we're gonna fight for I, it. I like it more than some of the new ones. So yeah, we're gonna fight for it. I think. Yeah, I. Uh, Although I do have my issues you got, with you got it, some issues? but it's still it does not deserve the hate that it gets. <laughs> That's what I will say right now before we you know actually record it. John Woo, 
amazing Chinese filmmaker who, for whatever reason, was given budget to make movies in Hollywood for a brief time, and we are all the better for it, uh, especially yes. for Face Off, which oh my is God. amazing. Yes. Five out of five. Yeah, <laughs> one of our favorite films. Eventually, we got to talk about it on the show. I w- yes, please. Um, Absolutely. Uh, but two weeks from now... Uh, we are going to be back with a special guest for a free episode, and we are going to be talking. Oh my god, I don't even remember what we're going to be talking. <laughs> we are going to be talking. I think Satan's Claw and Captain Kronos. What the? F- <laughs> awesome. I have no idea what. Two that films is. I've never heard of. Uh, I, I I looked them up on Letterbox. What are like they? A are couple. They, like I think sci-fi. One or? sounds like a vampire movie, maybe. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. No idea, but either way, a guest a guest picked him out. And uh, he's, we can he, find he's a good friend of the show, <laughs> and he has great taste and makes awesome video essays. So uh, I, I will trust him on this journey yes, absolutely. Uh, when, we, when we do those ones. So that's what you can expect from uh, the, the show in the, the coming weeks. Uh, once again, if you guys want those bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. And uh, if you listen to it on iTunes, give us a good old rating on iTunes. Please do. And I think that's it. That's going to be the show for this week. So peace. Keep us sleazy. Keep it sleazy.